So today we are going to get into John chapter 3. We're continuing our, our series in the book of John. We started in chapter 1, verse 1, and we are up to chapter 1, chapter 3, verses 1 through 21 today. Now, I am um, I'm excited about this passage today because this passage incorporates verse 16, John 3, 16, which is most likely, for all of us here, the... Um, most famous verse uh, of America, if I could put it that way, at least in our lifetime or my lifetime, John 3.16. Even if you're not a Christian, uh, you might have heard of John 3.16. Back when I was younger, I wasn't really into football, but there'd be a guy wearing a rain rainbow wig who would go to all these sporting events and hold up a sign saying John 3.16, right? And then, you know, anybody who watched football knew John 3.16. Even if they didn't know what it was about, they had heard about John 3.16. And you may know this verse by heart. Uh, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not pe- should not perish, but have eternal life. If that rings a bell, that's John 3.16. So today, our passage incorporates that. So I'm very excited about that. But I am really excited because we're not just going to look at John 3.16, but we're going to look at John 3.15 and John 3.17. We're going to look at John 3 verses 1 through 21. So we're going to look at the larger context here, which is so, so important whenever we study the Scriptures. Somebody once said, I don't know if I'm getting this phrase right, but somebody once said, a text without a context becomes a pretext. And what what they meant by that was that when you take a text of Scripture, if you don't look at the bigger context, you can turn it into a pretext for saying whatever you want. Which is, which is very, very dangerous, right? When we just take one verse out of, out of its context. So uh, this is why when we look at the Bible, we want to look at the greater context around it because that just brings so much more color and understanding and depth to every verse that we, we study. So um, let me read through this and then we'll swing back around and go through it more slowly. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you 
heavenly things. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses, was, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is God's word. When we come around here back to verse 1, we are introduced to this man named Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus is a very, very interesting person. This is the first time we, we see him, but it won't be the last. Uh, here, he, we see him in his, in his first encounter with Jesus, and um, you know he has these, these kind of uh, bewildering thoughts and questions based on the things that Jesus is saying. But later on in chapter 7, we see Nicodemus come back on the scene, uh, and it seems like he's quite supportive of Jesus, actually, at that point. Like something is, has really happened within him. And then by chapter 19, after Jesus was crucified and had died, we see Nicodemus, who had clearly become a disciple of Jesus, there at the side of the cross, um, there to actually prepare, along with Joseph of Arimathea, to help prepare Jesus' body for burial. But here, in chapter 3, we, we see him first, his first encounter with Jesus when he comes on the scene. And, and he approaches Jesus and he calls him rabbi. He says, we know that you're a teacher from God. And he's saying that basically we know this because you've been doing many signs. Nobody could do the types of things that you're doing unless he were from God. Now, Nicodemus doesn't have a clear understanding of who Jesus is. He apparently thinks that Jesus is a very special person, but he's from God, but he's not God. He's a human being. He's a, maybe a prophet or a great teacher who can work miraculous signs. And Jesus, I, I think what he's saying is that if, that's, if this is who you think I am, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you think you've seen something here? You think you understand something about me? Unless you are born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God at all. You can't participate in it. You can't be a part of it unless you are born again. Now, Nicodemus is like, Jesus, what are you talking about? What do you mean need to be born again? How is that possible? I mean, can a, can a man, when he's an adult, enter back into his mother's womb and somehow come back out again? That's absolutely impossible. Even a newborn baby, you can't do that. You cannot do that. Once a baby comes out, you can't put the baby back into its womb how is this that a person can possibly be born again? Jesus, what are you talking about? And he says, Jesus says, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, there is a lot written about what water and Spirit means. There's a lot of different views out there by different theologians. I think the view that says water and Spirit are basically synonymous, meaning water and Spirit are both referring to a spiritual birth, that water doesn't refer to physical birth, like, you know, when your, your mother's water broke or, or something like that. Water refers to a spiritual birth as well. For example, we see in the Old Testament a really clear passage that highlights this relationship between water and spirit is Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 27, where God, through Ezekiel, says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. Water providing a spiritual cleansing from sin, from idolatry. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So we can see here from Ezekiel in the Old Testament, Water and spirit are often intertwined, meaning a spiritual rebirth, a spiritual cleansing, a spiritual life-giving that needs to happen through the work of God. So what Jesus is saying is that there needs to be a spiritual rebirth within you. Jesus says, Nicodemus, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you need to be born again. Now, If you've been around the church for a while, I don't know about nowadays, but at least when I grew up, when I became a Christian in high school, the term born-again Christian was a really popular term that was thrown around a lot. And and people would say, are you a a born-again Christian? And it's almost become kind of something that we've become numb to, right? That term born-again Christian. But it's so important. This idea that you need to be born again is so important and so central, so crucial to what it means to be a Christian. You know, I think as Americans, we love the idea of um, self-improvement. Like if you go to the bookstore, like back in the day when there were bookstores, right? Like Barnes & Noble, I used to love walking around in there. And there'd be the self-help section, the self-improvement section, this big section, right? With multiple shelves of books about how you can improve yourself, how you can become a better person or more successful or a nicer person or this or that. Huge, huge sections on how we can improve ourselves. We live right now in Silicon Valley here, which is in many ways, I think, the center, the epicenter of that idea in America. We love to optimize here, don't we? We just want to optimize everything. Oh, we could take ourselves and we can tweak ourselves and reiterate and iterate and iterate and just optimize everything. We can optimize our productivity to become super productive. We can optimize our diet to become superhuman, like super healthy and to live to be 120. We want to optimize our sleep, you know, and, and, and attach electrodes to our brain or, or at least wear an Apple Watch or something or another and, and to measure our sleep and optimize everything. We have this kind of, this belief, this ethos that we can just continue to improve and improve and improve humanity until we are on the verge of perfection. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says you can't improve humanity because humanity is dead. 
Humanity is dead. Trying to improve humanity is like, is like taking a corpse and trying to tell it to work out. Maybe you'll work off death, jogging a few hours, a few, a few extra miles per week. It's impossible. It cannot be done. Jesus says what we do need is we need to be reborn. If we were a house, we wouldn't just need a, a new coat of paint. We're not a fixer-upper. If we were a house, we would be condemned, hopelessly blighted, with the only option being to be torn down and rebuilt. That's what Jesus is saying. We're dead. You need to be reborn. Friends, you know, through 10,000 years of, of, of recorded human history, do you know what we had near the beginning of recorded human history? We had war, murder, rape, stealing, lying, adultery, addiction, racism, injustice, cruelty, pride, lust, idolatry, hatred, jealousy, and on and on and on. Do you know what we have today? After 10,000 years of recorded human history, we have war, murder, rape, stealing, lying, adultery, addiction, racism, injustice, cruelty, pride, lust, idolatry, hatred, jealousy, and on and on and on. We have not changed. Our technology may have gotten more advanced, but that hasn't prevented us from using it to, to create more powerful weapons that we can use to destroy each other more potent drugs that we can become addicted to, more sophisticated means by which one group can oppress another group for the sake of their own benefit. Newer, more advanced technology and sophistication in those areas have not prevented any of the things that we've been doing all along for thousands and thousands of years. You know, there's like, um, you know, there, there's that famous trope where you know, in a movie, and, and there's like probably 50 movies like this made every year where like an alien civilization comes and wants to destroy humanity because they look at humanity and they go, oh, you humans, you're so evil, and you're so selfish, and you just want to hurt each other and kill each other, and, and the only thing we can do, the only choice we have, the right thing to do as an alien advanced civilization is to wipe you out, right? You know this movie, there's like 50 of them made a year, most going straight to DVD, or not DVD, what am I saying? <laughs> straight to... That cheap streaming platform, whatever it might be, the free one or whatever, it's, it's a well-worn movie trope. And then what happens? Some human comes along and says, no, we're not that bad. We are worth saving. There is good within us. There is good within us. No, no, you're wrong, aliens. We're good. We're not like that. And the aliens, you know what they should do? They should just quote Romans chapter 3 and say to you, in your book, it says this, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Spaceships, open fire, right? That's what, this is what the Bible says. You know what? The aliens are right. The aliens in those movies are right. Actually, there is no good within us. All humanity has sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have rebelled against our maker, the creator of the universe, and have set ourselves up 
as our own gods. That is our state. There is no self-improving that state. There is no optimizing that state. We're dead. We need to be born again. We need to be reborn. And you know, on top of that, not only are we in that state of death and needing to be reborn, but Jesus says in this very enigmatic, again, often discussed passage here in verse 8, he says, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And I think I agree with the theologians who say that what Jesus is saying here is that the work of the Holy Spirit cannot be controlled. It cannot be predicted. So even in terms of your rebirth, of your being reborn, it is not your own efforts that achieves that. It is not your own innate goodness that gets you there, that brings about the state of rebirth. No, it is the work of God from beginning to end. It is the grace of God. Just as you, in your pre-existent self, before you were even a fertilized egg, you could do nothing, nothing to influence your future parents to bring you into the world. There's nothing that you can do. So is there, there's nothing that we can do in order to save ourselves. This is the work of God, the work of the Holy Spirit from beginning to end. Which is why Paul writes in Ephesians, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. From beginning to end, it is God who resurrects the dead and brings rebirth into our dead spirits. Now, Nicodemus, when he hears that, he goes, how can these things be? He doesn't understand. He's perplexed. Jesus, what are you talking about? This doesn't make any sense. And now Jesus, he says to him in, a, in, a, in quite a rebuke here, he says, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? In other words, what Jesus is saying is, look, you are you, you supposed to be a teacher in Israel. You're the one who teaches the Old Testament, the law of God to the people, to the Israelites. And you don't understand this, which means Jesus is saying is that this is what the Old Testament is talking about. That we needed rebirth all along, like Ezekiel told us. Now, this is important because Ezekiel, because Nicodemus, excuse me, he had knowledge. He was extremely well-versed in the Torah, in the Old Testament. He had position. He was a Pharisee, and he was a member, probably a member of the Sanhedrin, which is the, the ultimate legislative and judicial body of the Jews. He had the respect of the people. But none of this, at the end of the day, leads to salvation. There needs to be rebirth. And, and that's important, friends, because for, for those of you who have been very churched, like Nicodemus in a sense, in a modern-day version, being churched is not enough. It's not enough to just be involved or participate in a church. It's not enough to volunteer. It's not enough just to give. You may have famous pastors and missionaries 
in your, in your lineage. That's not enough. You may have been going to church forever. You may have been going to church since you were inside your mother's womb. You, are, you may be so churched that, 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 that when you were born in the hospital, you didn't just cry. You cried hallelujah. You were so churched. I'm sorry. But none of these things make you a Christian. None of these things make you a Christian. Friends, being in a church makes you a Christian as much as being in a garage makes you a car. If you walk into a garage, do you become a car? I don't think so, unless you're some type of transformer or something like that. How about if you walk into a garage once a week on Sundays at 10 o'clock? Do you become a car? No. You must be born again in order to become a Christian, in order to see the kingdom of God. And Jesus knows a thing or two about this because he says, no one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. What is he saying? He's saying, I know this. I can tell you about this, Nicodemus. I can tell the world about this, about heavenly things, about spiritual things, because I came from heaven. I'm the only one who has come from heaven. No human has come from heaven. Me, I am the only one. And because I have come from heaven, I can tell you about heaven. Friends, it's like, it's like you know, if you're not from New York, you could tell me about New York. But because I'm from New York, I can tell you more about New York. Because I can talk like this, because I was born in the Bronx, I grew up in Queens, and I could talk like this all day. I got my, you know, it's like I could be, I could tell you about New York because I'm from New York. You know, I, I, because I'm from there. Good thing I've gotten rid of that, but let's talk like nice Californians now. I, I, I am from New York, so I can tell you about New York in a way that if you're not from New York, you can't. Jesus is saying, I'm from heaven. I'm from heaven. So I can tell you about heavenly things. I can tell you about spiritual things. And now, so maybe we're like, okay, Jesus. So how do we be, how do we become born again? How do we do that? How do we do it? And we can't do it ourselves. How do we do that? How do we become born again? Well, Jesus says this. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What is Jesus talking about? Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness. He's referring to a passage from Numbers chapter 21, and I want to read this to us for context, verses 4 through 9. It says this, from Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made 
a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now, this is a, this is a very, very interesting passage. What's happening here is just a case of just wanton ungratefulness. It, the Israelites were in Egypt for 400 years, and they had become slaves in Egypt, living under harsh taskmasters. And eventually this became so bad that they cried out to God. They said, God, please help us. God, please save us. And God listened. He heard their prayers. And he sent Moses to go and deliver the people out of Egypt. And Moses came and, and, and worked wonders, miracles. Ten plagues came upon Egypt. And finally, Pharaoh said, go, get out of here. And then as they left, Pharaoh changed his mind, chased the Israelites, and then Moses opened up the Red Sea through the power of God, and the Israelites crossed the Red Sea. But then when Pharaoh and his army tried to cross the Red Sea to chase them, the waters came back down and drowned the entire army of Pharaoh, and the Israelites made it out on the other side. And then when they were in the desert, because there's no food, there's no water, God miraculously provided water for them. He miraculously provided food for them. Every morning they would wake up and they would see on the floor that there was something called manna, that they called manna. That was like this thing that could become like a type of bread and they could eat. And on the sixth day, there would be twice as much so that they could rest and observe the Sabbath on the seventh day. God brought these miracles after miracles after miracles, daily miracles in the wilderness to keep the people alive. But the people complained again and again and again. And they said, God, there's no water. God, there's no food. There was food. But they said, this miracle food you provided is worthless. We hate it. They even said things like, oh, it would have been better if we had stayed in Egypt. Oh, life was so good in Egypt. They'd become completely ungrateful, a disgrace, thankless to the God who worked miracles to bring them out of slavery and to provide for them. So God brought about a judgment upon the people and these fiery snakes. And I think that means that if they bit you, there was this it felt like fire in your veins. It was not pleasant. It was probably torturous. These serpents came and began biting people, and people began to die from this. And they, they recognized, they realized that we deserve this. We have sinned against God. Moses, please pray to God to take away these serpents from us. And then God tells Moses to do something very interesting. He says, make, make a snake, make a serpent like the ones that you see, cast it out of bronze, Attach it to a pole and lift it up high. And then tell everybody, whenever anybody is bitten by one of these snakes, look up, look up to that pole, look up at that snake. And if you look up at that snake, you will be healed. You will be healed. So strange. Why? Why? But when the people did, when they looked up at that snake, they would be healed of this venom within them. What does this mean? Jesus is saying this is about him. What does that mean? What he's saying is that just as Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness, and if you look at it, looking at it probably wasn't pleasant. It was the symbol of their disobedience. It was the symbol of their sin, of what they deserved. Jesus also would be lifted up on a cross. He would be hung there on a piece of wood 
not, though, for his own sin, like the Israelites in the wilderness, but for our sin, but for your sin and for my sin. And, and Jesus, what he's, Jesus is saying is that anyone who looks up to the cross, who looks upon the cross and what Christ has done in faith, we will be healed and forgiven of our sins. You have to look. You just have to look. It is not anything that you can do. You just have to look upon the cross in faith. And just as the Israelites in the, in the, in the camp when they were bitten by one of these snakes, maybe they were on the edge of the camp. Maybe they were on the outskirts of the camp. Maybe they were, they were, they were wandering around and grazing. No, not, not grazing animals. I don't know. What, whatever they were doing out there, and they got bit by a snake, and they're like, oh, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? I'm so far from the snake, from the pole. In that Middle Eastern sun, all they had to do was look up, and they would see that bronze shining in the distance, easily spotted, from wherever they were, and they could look up and see it and be healed. Friends, that's the message of the gospel, that wherever you are, whoever you are, whatever race, nationality, whatever you do, you can look up from anywhere in the world at Christ, at the cross, and you can be forgiven of your sin. All you have to do is look up. This is the grace of God. You just have to be willing to look upon the cross and acknowledge, I am a sinner. I am deserving of God's judgment, his wrath. I am deserving of death and eternal separation from God. But I look to you, Jesus. You died on the cross in my place. I accept you as my Lord and Savior. Would you forgive me of my sin? And when you do, you are born again. You go from death to life. And that is the work of God within you. This, this is the context of verse 16. So, when it says here, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. This is how great the love of God is. This is how great it is. For God so loved the world that he raised his son up on a piece of wood. He lifted him up high so that anybody who would look to him in faith could be healed of the venom of sin and not die, but have everlasting life and have relationship with God, and be born again. This is how great the love of God is. Friends, isn't that that's so important? Because, you know, sometimes we have these misconceptions about God, right? We think he's, well, we think God the Father is this angry God of the Old Testament, but Jesus is that nice, lamb-petting God of the New Testament, right? We think the oh, Father God, he's, he's stern, he's, he, he doesn't like me. Maybe we have some father issues of our own. Maybe you weren't that close with your father. Maybe your father kind of uh, treated you in a particular way that made you view God the Father in that way. No, God so loved you that he gave his only son. That's how much he loved you. Friends, it's one thing for a man to die. It's a whole nother thing 
for a man to watch his own son die. You ask any father, and I'll bet you 99 out of 100 times, if, if you had to choose between you dying or your son dying, what would you choose? 99 out of 100. Any good father would say, me. Take me. But do not take my son. Do not take my son. Let my son live. It's one thing for a man to die. It is an unbearable thing for a man to watch his son die. But the Bible says, God so loved the world. He so loved you that he watched his own son die. He sent his own son to the cross so that you could live. How great is the love of God. As if to just drive this point further, it says here in verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. You know, have you ever thought or or felt like, hey, if you're not a Christian here today, have you ever thought or felt this? You know, God is just like, he's just out to condemn people, isn't he? You know, like that whole fire and brimstone thing. Isn't God so judgmental? You know, got that lightning bolt in his hand just ready to go. Isn't that who he is? And man, I've met a whole bunch of holier-than-thou Christians who made God feel this way. If you have, I'm really sorry. But that's not God. That, that's, that's not who our God is. But let me say this to, to really try to make this clear. God does judge the world, but he doesn't condemn the world. Now, this is a very important distinction here in John. This is very important. God does judge. What do I mean by that? Well, Jesus, when he comes on the scene, he does call out sin for what it is. He does do that. He makes judgments. He calls out sin in the religious leaders. He calls out sin in his disciples when it's there. He'll call out sin in you and me through the scriptures. He does that. God sees everything perfectly and calls it for what it is, he will not call white black or black white. God is truth. So he can't do that. He won't do that. God will judge. He calls things for what they are accurately, but God doesn't condemn. He doesn't come here to our world and say, oof, this world is bad. This is a lost cause. Forget it doomed for the day of destruction, condemned, blighted. That's it. What God does do is he, sa- he comes, he judges, he says, you are sinners. He says, all of us are sinners. All of us here are sinners. But he comes and he says, look up. Look up at my son that you may receive forgiveness. Look up. My judgment is true. There is no way that you can save yourself. No amount of do-gooding will earn you salvation. There's no amount of being Nicodemus and knowing things and being respected and being religious will save you. No amount of that will. That's my judgment as God. But I'm not here to condemn you. I'm here to tell you there is a way to be born again. Look up at my son who I have given for you. I judge, but I do not condemn Look up to the cross. And in verse 18 here, there's another misunderstanding here that's so important. Jesus says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, 
But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Here's the other thing we need to be understand, we need to be aware of. We're, God doesn't come to condemn us. We're already condemned. We are already condemned. What do I mean by that? Romans chapter 5, Paul says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. In other words, ever since Adam sinned, when he sinned, something happened. Sin entered into humanity like a disease and has been passed down from Adam ever since. And every single human being who is born is born with a sinful nature. We are born condemned. And as soon as we are physically able to and we grow old enough and we have consciousness and we begin to sin, we act like condemned men and women. That was our state from the moment that we were conceived. Each of us has been born with a sinful nature and each of us sins as a result of this sinful nature. Some people will ask, why would God, if he's so loving, send innocent people to hell? Well, the answer is he doesn't. He doesn't. Because there's no such thing as an innocent person. Only guilty people, condemned people, standing before a God who cannot be anything but perfectly just, who will not sweep sin under the rug because to do so would mean that he is not a God of perfect justice. He's not a bribable God. He's a perfect and just God. John, later in next week's passage, he says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. Friends, it doesn't say the wrath of God comes upon him. The wrath of God will fall upon him. But the wrath of God remains. Meaning, it's already there. What he's talking about is that judgment, that condemnation. We were born already with a sinful nature deserving of the wrath of God. That is how we enter into this world. Friends, we are the terminally ill patient. And God is the doctor. And he comes to us telling us, there is a cure for your disease. That cure is in my son, Jesus. He takes your disease from you. He died in your place if, if you will look up to him. You will receive him as your Lord and Savior. Some of us, we're like, if you don't believe in Jesus, and you know, it's like you're that snake bit person in the tent and you're writhing around in pain in Numbers chapter, chapter uh, seven or whatever it was, and you're like, oh, I'm in so, pain, so much pain, so much pain. And your friend drags you out of the tent and says, look up at the pole, look up at the serpent. He's up there in the pole and you're writhing in your pain. You go, oh my gosh, uh, no, I'm good. I'm all right. Oh gosh, it hurts so much. God is telling us, look up, look up at my son who died in your place. Let me conclude here, these final verses. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness 
rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Friends, if you are, if you are not a Christian, if you have never believed in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the choice is yours today. John's talking about a choice here at the end of this passage. You know, loving darkness, you may say, that's not me. I don't love darkness. It doesn't mean just being a murderer or, or joining the mafia or something like that. It means, it means in your heart you're saying, I don't need God's son who he provided. I'm going to do things my way. I'm going to count on my own righteousness, my own goodness as an answer for my sin. I'm going to trust in myself rather than trusting in God, rather than trusting in this Christ who John described in chapter 1 as the life that was the light of men. Friends, this, that is the path that does lead to that final condemnation. On that day, when Christ returns for the second time and everybody is raised from the dead and we stand before the final judgment seat of God, on that day, if you have not put your faith in God's provided Savior, there will be condemnation and eternal separation from God. If I could use one last illustration, God is like, he's like a judge that comes to your door and says to you, in a week from now, you will be found guilty for your crimes. You will be sentenced and you will be punished. But I am here to tell you today that there is a way out. My son has taken your punishment for you. You don't need to receive that punishment if you will believe in him and put your faith in him. Friends, will you look up to Jesus today? Will you look up to God's provided means of salvation, of forgiveness, and of becoming a child of God? Let's pray. I'm going to invite the worship team up. And I just want to, um, if we could just close our eyes in a meditative um, posture for a moment here as we reflect upon this message. If there is anybody here this morning and you have never believed in Jesus as your Savior, as the only means and I tell you, he is the only way. I'll tell you that if there was another way, there's no father who would send his son to be tortured and die upon a cross if there were another way. The cross is proof that there is no other way. Only through Jesus and faith in him can there be forgiveness. I want to invite you this day to, to look up. Would you look up? Even 
You can't count on any of your righteousness. It doesn't matter how many people said you're a really good person, you're a nice person, like they might have said to Nicodemus. None of that will get you anywhere. Ultimately, you have to look up, look to the cross, and confess, yes, I am dead in my sin. There is no means by which I can be forgiven and no means by which I can experience eternal life. But I look up to the cross, I looked up to you, Jesus, and your sacrifice, and I confess that I'm a sinner. Would you forgive me of my sins? Would you be my God? Would you be my God? And I will follow after you. If that's you, would you take a moment right now and just, would you tell that to Jesus? Would you tell that to God? You could tell it in your heart, tell it to him in your heart, in your thoughts. You can say it out loud. You could say it in a whisper if you'd like. You could simply say, yes, God, I believe. I believe that. I want that life. I want to be born again. I believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Be my Lord and Savior. If that's you, would you take a moment right now? Would you tell God that? Tell him that right now.